You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to Yahweh? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh, to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by Yahweh that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent twelve thousand of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Tell you about them sobbing women who lived in the Roman days. It seems that they all went swimming while their men was off to graze. Well, a Roman troop was riding by. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 714 of this podcast. Today is Friday, September 15th, 2023, the year of our Lord. And that was the last chapter, chapter 21 of the book of Judges. Coming up next, in our next episode, we'll start the book of Ruth, and that'll be fun. I love the book of Ruth, personally. I find it very soothing after the book of Judges. Man alive, you will be ready, I'm sure, no doubt. We get into some lighter fare, some pleasanter fare, and we get to thank God that there are women, and it's not all just men. But let's talk about the men. Let's talk about Judges chapter 21 and wives needed for the tribe of Benjamin. But before we do, that track there is from the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It's a classic. If you've never watched it, it is fantastic. It's very, very funny and full of great music and great acting. And come November, I won't be necessarily so often thinking of The Magnificent Seven and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, because right now I have seven sons, but the connotations biblically, I always think of the seven sons of Sceva, and that's not exactly the look we're going for. Maybe we'll go to 12. I don't know. Crank it to 11, crank it to 12. The good Lord above knows how many sons we'll have. But for now, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is still a very funny picture of what it could be like years from now when all of my sons, all of Lauren's and my sons are old enough to go according. Hopefully they won't be quite as unruly, quite as rambunctious and rowdy as the seven brothers in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But here we have, going back to Judges chapter 21, an issue of where are the Benjaminites going to get their wives. All these Israelites have said, you know what? We're not going to give our daughters to the men of Benjamin. And, you know, there's a lot that I just don't know about this chapter. I just don't fully understand it. It kind of breaks my brain a little bit. In part, if I were to venture a guess, and someone please correct me, if you know more, you understand this better, please help me to be wiser about it. But I wondered to myself, why make this oath? Why swear that you're not going to give any of your daughters, all these other tribes, all 11 other tribes, are not going to give their daughters in marriage to the men of Benjamin? Why make that kind of a pledge? Why make that kind of an oath? Perhaps it had something to do with the way that that war, that fight between Israel and Benjamin started in the first place. This is conjecture, and I don't know this, but nevertheless, it makes sense to me that you have these other tribes looking at the low regard for a Levite's concubine demonstrated by the men of Gibeah and the certification of, the ratification of that low regard for the wife of the Levite 
or the concubine of the Levite, by all of the men of Benjamin. All the Benjaminites basically say, yeah, we don't really care so much about what the men of Gibeah did to the wife of the Levite. We'll fight you before we let you dispense justice to the men of Gibeah. The 700 men who are mustered of Gibeah. Yeah, no, we're going to fight to defend those 700 men, these worthless dogs who raped an innocent woman to death. We're going to defend them before we allow you to come in here and dispense justice. What happened to that woman was not just rape, it was adultery because she was the concubine of this Levite. And it wasn't just rape and it wasn't just adultery, it was also murder, which is to say all of the men, if all of the men of Gibeah participated in that, either actively or passively, they all deserved death, which is what they got. But what happens to these towns and villages of Benjamin? If it's a little bit of a mystery to you, if you're wondering, well, how is it that the men of Benjamin came to be without wives? Didn't any of them already have wives? Do note that the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 20, says all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And it says, the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire, which is to say very scorched earth, total destruction, which is to say it would seem that the other tribes of Israel They went too far. Not only did they make war on the men of Benjamin, they made total war on all the towns of Benjamin. And it would seem, even though it's not expressly said in these terms, it would seem as though the Israelites who made war on Benjamin put to death every man, woman, and child of Benjamin they found in these towns. They killed the livestock. They killed everything. Everybody and everything, and they burned the towns. And so who's left? Who's left of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, it's probably just the men who were able to flee. It's probably just the men who were able to get away and go into hiding. But then while they're in hiding, the army of Israel goes scorched earth and total war on their families who are left defenseless in their towns and they die. And this, again, is where I say, as needs to be said, pay attention to the capstone of the book of Judges. The very last verse of the very last chapter of the book of Judges says it again, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that is to say, it seemed good, it seemed right in the eyes of the men of the other tribes of Israel who had assembled for war, it seemed good in their eyes to completely wipe out Benjamin, except they didn't. There were some men left who had gone into hiding. And what's curious is you have this picture of what very often happens in war. In all of my study of military history, you find variations on this theme and you will also observe it when you see veterans return from war in the U.S. The war on terror is not that 
far in the rearview mirror, I had two brothers-in-law, my wife's older brother, and then also our brother-in-law, Todd, who married my wife's sister, Katie, who went into the army. I had my own brother who went into the Marine Corps. All three served in the armed forces of the United States of America, two in the army, one in the Marine Corps. All three were overseas, either in Iraq or Afghanistan for tours of duty. And all three saw and heard war. And when they came back, they were much sobered. And there was a sense of regret and the senselessness of violence. And what was it for? What did we accomplish? What did we get out of all that? Really? Was it worth it? If you want to ask someone who's never seen war, whether you should go to war against this or that people, this or that country, you will get a very different answer than if you ask someone who's actually fought in a war. You will get a lot more detail, both offered and asked for and demanded even, and you'll get a lot more passion from somebody who's been to war on the question of what makes a war just? What is a worthy cause to fight and die or kill for? But here in Judges 21, it seems as though this total war approach to Benjamin is regretted and also some of the oaths that have been made. We are not going to give any of our daughters in marriage to the tribe of Benjamin. Some of those oaths are also regretted. Similar to Jephthah having offered a hasty vow, so also these men of Israel seem as though they regret having made the hasty vow. Now, what's curious though, unlike Jephthah, they gather together and they assemble before Yahweh, before their God, to figure this out. And it's the men, again, who gather together and they realize they've brought a great deal of disorder that now they have to figure out what to do with. They've brought disorder because there were 12 tribes descended from 12 sons of Jacob, who was Israel. And it would be tragic if all of a sudden there was no more tribe of Benjamin. But what do they do? Well, they sit down and they think. They, they sit down and they think and they reason and they discuss and they deliberate. And the question is asked a couple of times. And so you can just imagine some measure of bedlam and chaos and someone asks a question and then someone else has a comment. And then the first person who didn't get their question answered asks it again, louder this time. I said, who did not come up when we called for everyone to gather together at Mizpah? Who did not come up? Who just blew it off? Who stayed home because they didn't really care? They were apathetic like Benjamin. They were indifferent to this need to serve justice and to deal justice to Gibeah and to Benjamin. Who did not come up? Because we swore that we would avenge that indifference. And then the answer finally comes, Jabesh Gilead. And so what do they do? They say, okay, we're going to pick our bravest 12,000 men and go strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. And what does it say? Also the women and the little ones, except the virgins, the virgin women who have never lain with a man. They've never had sex. They've never copulated. They've never been with a man. Those they set aside. Young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they say, okay, well, those virgins can be wives for the Benjaminites who are left. But then that's not enough. That's not enough women. 
That's not enough women for the tribe of Benjamin. And oh, by the way, you can be forgiven if you're just spinning, right? Your head is just spinning and you're like, wow, what in the world? This is just like crazy, right? How is this okay? How does God not put a stop to this? How does Understand, again, not everything that's described is being put forward as a good example. In fact, more often than not, almost always in the book of Judges, at best, you get a cautionary tale, right? At best. But all of this is summed up with, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So even though they're assembled before Yahweh, they're deciding. They are deliberating. They are going to do what is right in their eyes individually and collectively. So they strike Jabesh Gilead. They take the 400 young virgins and they give them to Benjamin. And then they say that's not enough. And they come back together again and they come up with a plan. And the plan is this. Let's give permission quietly, covertly to Benjamin to wait for the young ladies of Shiloh. The daughters of Shiloh will make for suitable wives for Benjamin. And Shiloh is not going to be informed that this is what the plan is. But the Benjaminites, they will wait. They will lie in ambush and wait for the daughters of Shiloh to come out and to dance, come out to the vineyards, and you Benjaminites, take your pick and haul them off and basically kidnap these women. And if the men, if the fathers and the brothers of these women come to us, no, I'm sorry, when, right? Not if, when. When their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say, please let it be. Be gracious. This is the plan. This is what it is. And so that's what it is, right? That's what happens. They all agree, whether you like the plan, whether I like the plan, whether everybody present likes the plan, I'll bet you that the fathers and brothers of Shiloh didn't like the plan. That's the plan. That's what is happening. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to be done. But then remember, again, just because this is what was done, that doesn't mean that this was what pleased God, what he would have told them to do if they had asked him for wisdom or direction here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yes, yes. And we get another case study, yet another illustration of what that can produce, what that can result in, in the way of policy and in the way of rulings, in the way of decisions. If you don't like it, now think about the kinds of policies and the kinds of rulings and the kinds of judgments that we settle on. And what are you saying about them? How are you engaging? Are you encouraging people to ask God? Yeah, we gather before God and then we pray a prayer and we lament the consequences of our reactions to the previous set of problems. We open our convocations, our gatherings with prayer, and we'll close them with prayer as well. And then we'll just do whatever's right in our own eyes in the intervening. Please, Lord, bless whatever it is that we are going to do next. And if he lets us just do whatever we will do and have the consequences be what they will be, that doesn't mean that he's pleased by that. That doesn't mean that it's going to have the best result that it could have had. It just is what it is. And that's the kind of thing that we say. We say, well, it is what it is. What do you do? Well, what you could do, what would be wise to do, would be to say, let's ask God for wisdom because he gives generously to all without finding fault and believe and not doubt that God has given us wisdom 
and then proceed accordingly. Or you could study God's word. You could study the book of Judges, for example, for instance, or the book of Ruth, which follows hereafter shortly. And you could see what God has said, what he's promised, what he's commanded, what he's blessed, what he's instituted, what he's provided. And you could build your decisions on that basis. The Lord has spoken. So says Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You could say that. In fact, that would be the very best thing to say. And that's the antidote. That is the antidote to everyone doing what is right in his own eyes and coincidentally doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. The antidote is to do what is right according to God. But let's talk about some current events items and Let's start with John Knox over at Not The Bee and a post from September 11th, 9-11 of this year. Some chivalry guy made a thread about how all the good virtues have been twisted by the devil's woke experiment, and I think it's a must read. Here we have at Chivalry Guild on X, that is Twitter, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. He writes, they say the devil's greatest trick was convincing man he didn't exist. I'd argue he's pulled off a grander operation in recent decades. He sabotaged the language of the virtues of human excellence. Here it is. Here's what he has in the way of nine points. With the intro, if you compromise the words and make the virtues seem so lame that nobody has any interest in them, you've killed moral aspiration altogether. Consider the evidence. Across the board, modern usage has systematically degraded the words. First, prudence becomes utilitarian calculation bordering on cowardice. Two, meekness becomes weakness. Three, chastity becomes prudery. Four, humility becomes round-shouldered self-deprecation. Five, charity becomes niceness. Six, temperance becomes portion control. Seven, hope becomes wishful thinking. Eight, justice becomes whatever political outcomes are most convenient for the regime. Nine, courage gets tainted by association with the supposedly stunning and brave artists and activists who say banal and safe things. So there you go. There is his thesis. Oh, but wait, there's more. Ten, strength or prowess devolves largely into a metaphor for mental toughness. Magnanimity, which Aquinas calls the jewel of the virtues, suffers a different fate of simply being forgotten. Many have just never heard of magnanimity. Magna what now? This is next level stuff, absolutely masterfully nefarious. Again, why would anyone care to be prudent, humble, just, etc. when these things are so unimpressive and make no claim on the heart? That is a fine question. He continues, It's never my intention to leave black pills on the table, so let me offer what I believe to be the most targeted and simple remedy for reclaiming a sense of the virtues. Get to training. Literal, physical training. Nothing teaches a man the possibility of improvement quite like getting stronger, faster, and more capable. Your efforts, your work, your discipline becomes a part of you which you bring with you everywhere. It is a moral lesson made undeniably physical and simple, and it teaches you how to get started down the path of excellence in other areas of your life. The words start to come alive in a new way once you've tasted that success. Here we have in view several memes, one of them being Jordan Peterson sitting in an office in an armchair saying, clean up your room, 
And this is, oh, by the way, why Jordan Peterson is so engaging for so many men, because he gives you an order and it's direct and it's simple and it's very practical and it's honorable to have a clean room. And it's also what we would call hypocritical to complain about what a mess everything is when you don't clean up what is right in front of you, what is your domain when you don't attend to that, but you want to complain about everybody else not attending to what is their responsibility. You are a hypocrite. You're just pretending at virtue. You are putting on a mask like the old Greek thespians, the old actors in Greek plays. You put on a mask, which makes it look like you are a certain character, but you're not that character underneath the mask. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. You're play acting. The difference between virtue signaling and virtue is whether you actually aspire to these things and do them. So good stuff, excellent stuff from at Chivalry Guild, the Chivalry Guild on X. I'll add a post I saw shared on Facebook by Dr. Philip Kaiser, who is, I believe, the presiding elder, one of the elders at Dominion Covenant Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Food for thought, the virtue continuum. Here we have a number line with arrows pointing in two opposite directions. One is deficiency. The other is excess. Here we have integrity, discernment, love, respect, humility, diligence, temperance, and courage listed. When you have a deficiency of integrity, we call that corruption. When you have an excess of integrity, you have legalism. When you have a deficiency of discernment, we have foolishness. When you have an excess of discernment, we call that judgmentalism. When you have a deficiency of love, we call that selfishness. When you have an excess of love, we call that enablement. Respect, when it's lacking, is disregard. When there's too much of it, we call that idolatry. Humility, when absent, is pride. And when there's too much humility, we call that degradation. Too little diligence, we call that slothfulness. Too much diligence, and that's workaholism. Too little temperance, and that's licentiousness. Too much temperance, and that's strictness. Too little courage, and we call that cowardice. Too much courage, and we call it foolhardiness. But then what are we actually meaning when we say there's an excess of one of these attributes or a deficiency of one of these attributes? What we mean is there is an excess or deficiency relative to the other virtues, relative God's standard, his call, his command. In a given situation, in a particular instance, or maybe generally speaking in life, we're talking about excess and deficiency relative to the other virtues. What is integrity apart from love and respect? What is courage apart from humility and diligence? What is temperance without discernment? That's really what you should be thinking. That's what you should be asking yourself. But then going back to the post from at Chivalry Guild, the Chivalry Guild, we feel this, we see this in everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. When there's not an objective standard of God said to do this, he said to not do that, teach them to observe all that I've commanded, Jesus said, was the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. That becomes how you measure in a particular situation whether you're actually being virtuous. Are you actually being righteous? Think of the fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is what your life produces, your actions, your words coming from the heart, being a result of what you meditate on, what factors into your decisions, what you value, what you prioritize, when you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and this all is testified to in God's Word. If you want to have these fruits in your life, these good fruits, you have to walk in the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit, and not walk according to the flesh. That is your sinful nature, your sinful desires, not what the Gnostics would say, that this is some mind-body dualism deal where we show our faith without works, as James would say, no, faith without works is dead. But what this means when we're walking according to the flesh is we're being entirely materialistic. And yes, entirely utilitarian. But then that is to say we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We're being selfish or by turn, we are enabling. We call love affirming every bad thing that everybody else does that seems right in their own eyes. But we have no measure of how to foster and cultivate and encourage love for God first, which is the first and greatest commandment when we do that. Rather, it's evidence, it's proof that we don't have love for God when all we have is love for our fellow man and it produces affirmation for what God would say is not good to do or repudiation of what God would say is good for us to do. To see an example of this at scale, Consider Luke Rosiak's reporting over at the Daily Wire. Filed under news, September 7th, 2023, Dem lawmakers vote for leftism in lockstep while Republicans routinely abandon conservatism, analysis finds. Among the 10 least conservative states when it comes to how Republican lawmakers actually vote were Mississippi, Wyoming, South Dakota, and Idaho. Republicans voted for conservative policies 77% of the time, while Democrats voted for liberal policies 87% of the time, according to the analysis of all 7,400 lawmakers in the 50 state houses during last year's legislative sessions. The study by CPAC's affiliated Center for Legislative Accountability concluded that Democrats were more likely to stick together on issues important to the party's base while Republicans broke apart. Quote, Republicans run on conservative promises, but after they win, more of them abandon the tough votes on key conservative policies when compared to Democrats whose first rule is to stick together. Our analysis shows how moderate Republicans broke apart on key issues like parental choice in education, securing strong voter ID, or putting a stop to COVID mandates, end quote. As a group, Luke Raziak's reporting continues, Mississippi Republican lawmakers had an average conservative score of 58%, making them less conservative than Republicans in New Jersey, Maryland, and Oregon. The state where Republicans voted most conservative was a swing state, interestingly enough, Wisconsin. The findings emphasize that the state's advancing conservative legislation are not doing it because of legislative dominance, but because of committed policymaking. Florida, for example, is a traditionally swing state in presidential elections, and Republicans don't hold nearly the percentage of seats in the state legislature that they do in places like Wyoming. But those Florida Republicans take full advantage of the majority they do have with a conservative score of 89%. And this underlines a point I've been trying to make here recently, especially before it can mean something that someone calls themselves a Republican or a conservative, or that you would decide whether to call yourself a conservative or a Republican, 
you have to understand the basis for what laws you would say we are a nation ruled by. To say you're a Republican might just be, I believe in a nation being ruled by laws and not by men. Democrats, by contrast, would say, we believe in a nation ruled by the majority. And the laws are whatever we say they are, as long as we get 51% of the vote. And even if we don't. (laughs) Republicans are only as good as the basis for the laws which they say we should live under is good. To be a conservative is only as significant and meaningful and valuable, meritorious, as is the answer to the question of what are you conserving? What is the basis for you conserving what you conserve and what is the basis for you compromising where you compromise? If it's all just utilitarianism, well, then just say that on the front end. Hey, I'm for doing whatever works. Well, okay, then you're a utilitarian. You're not necessarily a conservative. You're conserving what exactly? Perhaps nothing. Perhaps you just like certain of the issues, certain of the stances that are taken by conservatives, but you're not actually a conservative because your basis for answering that question is not the laws of God. It's not the natural order which God created in the beginning in six days and then rested on the seventh. What are we conserving? And is it according to virtue? Is it according to what God says is good that we would reward? Is it according to, say, for instance, what Paul writes in Romans about the governing authority being a minister of God to reward those who do what is good and to punish those who do what is evil, being predicated on God being the final authority on what is good and evil? If the answer to that question is not unequivocally yes and demonstrably so, you're not a conservative. You just maybe don't like the progressives so much. You just maybe wouldn't fit in with the lockstep leftists, but that doesn't mean you're a conservative, friend. For that matter, you might be a hypocrite. You might just be pretending to be a conservative because you want to fit in. You want a reputation for righteousness and virtue, but you don't actually mean it. That's a concerning place to be. As voters, as constituents, as individual citizens, we need to mean it. And that's going to require some work. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, you have to believe that there is such a thing as truth, which is a very conservative position to take. That's the basis for conservatism, is that there is such a thing as objective truth. It's not just however you feel today and tomorrow you might feel differently because the majority told you to feel differently or else. Truth is objective reality. And there are benefits to studying to show yourself an approved workman. Emphasis on the workman. So you actually do what you do based on what's true. And you refuse to do what you refuse to do based on what is true, objectively. If that doesn't ultimately come from, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, well, then you're building your house on sand. And whenever a crisis comes up, you will fold like a house built on sand because you heard the words of Jesus and you didn't put them into practice. The man who builds his house on the rock is the one who builds his house on doing, putting into practice what Jesus commanded, what he taught, what he said. Who he is transforms your life and you live according to what he said. If you say you love him and you don't keep his commands, you're a liar. You're a hypocrite. You're a play actor. You're virtue signaling, but you're not actually virtuous. And we have to judge with right judgment, particularly those who want our vote 
And they say, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus, sprinkle in a little bit of God talk, how they go to church and how they take their family to church, but they don't live any differently and they wouldn't legislate any differently or they wouldn't govern any differently or they wouldn't judge any differently based on that faith. What kind of faith is that? No faith at all. It's a dead faith. Don't be that guy and don't vote for those kinds of people if it at all can be helped. Primary them when they're in office and replace them with men of integrity. And be, you men out there, be men of integrity so that you know what to spot and what to look for. It takes one to know one. You have to be a man of integrity to know whether you're voting for and supporting a man of integrity. Or possibly, maybe, to serve in some of those offices. To be a man of integrity doesn't just help you to evaluate and assess if it came to pass that we need someone to do this job, who will do the job? You could actually raise your hand if you are a man of integrity and offer to serve your community and seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. But first things first, you have to be that man of integrity. You have to study to show yourself an approved workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You have to be a good steward of whatever is actually already under your authority. That comes first. Be faithful with a little, and then more will be entrusted to you. But lest we pick on the Republicans and shoot our own wounded and open ourselves up ever more and more only to more and more leftism, more and more of the radical democratic policies and initiatives, which, oh, by the way, you should understand to be practical atheism. Pure democracy is practical atheism. Not to be staff published a piece just yesterday. Here's their post. The leader of the Chicago Teachers Union sends her son to private school. Check out her jaw-dropping excuse for doing so. I'll play for you the audio here, but just to set it up, cut one is going to be CNN of all places, of all outlets. CNN hosted a interview of this teachers union boss, and it's great, right? This is really excellent. We need more of this. Kudos to CNN. Please, more of this. This is what you're supposed to be doing. We need more of this from our corporate news media. You don't have to be conservatives, but please, 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 just the facts, ma'am, like Sergeant Friday from Dragnet, just the facts. Ask the hard-hitting questions and let us make informed decisions, not because you <laughs> only informed the leftist agenda. Without further ado, here it is. Cut one. This will be an extended clip, but then I'll have some comments throughout and at the end. Take a listen. Tonight, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union is facing intense backlash after it was revealed that her eldest son is enrolled in a private Catholic school. Now, the reason that this is at all controversial for some people is because Stacey Davis Gates has championed the city's public school system while consistently voicing strong opposition to private education. Now, last year, she underscored her position on the issue, saying, quote, I can't advocate on behalf of public education without it taking root in my own household. And joining me now is Stacey Davis-Gates. Uh, Stacey, thank you for being here. Uh, we wanted to have you on uh, so you could help explain 
what happened here. You've likened in the past private schools of today to, quote, segregation academies of the Jim Crow South. Why then send your child to a private school after speaking out so publicly against them? I didn't speak out against private schools. I spoke out against school choice. School choice and private schools are two different entities. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Before I play any more. You wouldn't have private schools if there was no ability for parents to choose to send their children to private schools like you, Ms. Gates, are sending your son to a private school. You can say they're two separate and distinct things, school choice, yes, and private schools, yes, but they can't be separated out. You don't have private schools unless parents have the ability to choose to send their kids to private schools. Vice versa, parents' choice, school choice means nothing if there are no private schools to choose instead of the public option, the compulsory government schooling option. So in case it's not obvious, yes, but it's a distinction without a difference, really, for the purposes of this discussion. If you spoke out against school choice and yet you choose to send your son to a private school, hey, you know what? In the interest of consistency, I applaud you for sending your son to a private school to get a better education. All anybody's going to question is what makes you so special that you get to make that choice but you criticize parents other than you for sending their children who are not your son to private schools. That's the crux of this. That's what's at the root here is you're pretending that a certain position is virtuous and it doesn't match what you do yourself. But back to this interview. In in your tweet, you describe basically private I mean, you've described private schools of the North. That's That was literally your language. But you've also said this, um, that school choice was the choice of racists. I think at the end of the day, people are asking here about whether the rhetoric matches your actions. What do you say to them? Well, I would say that if we understand the desegregation of schools post-Brown v. the Board of Education, we also understand that school districts in the South in particular closed down entire school districts, offered money to families, white families, so they could get accepted into private schools. That is, in fact, the origin of school choice in America. And I know that the right wing wants to obscure that in the same way that they want to tell us that slavery was a job training program. Look, I, I understand the history that you're talking about. And Okay, so, so just take a moment to appreciate, all right? I'll pause again here. Take a moment to appreciate when asked a very direct question, a very good question. Actually, this is excellent reporting. This is excellent interviewing. Very pertinent very reasonable to ask this question. Thank you to Corey A. DeAngelis for tweeting this out, highlighting this. But when asked a question about how your rhetoric matches your private decisions, the public school's teachers union boss wants to change the subject to macro collective history lesson racism in a nutshell. It's hard to accuse the, and these are both African-American women, black women, the interviewer and the interviewed are both black women. It's hard to say, ah, that question you just asked is a racist question 
But let's find some variation on the same theme of changing the subject to racism. Wait a second. What does racism have to do with you criticizing school choice, but then making the choice yourself to opt your son out of the public schools? It's a fine choice, but it doesn't match, right? There's incongruity here. There's hypocrisy here. You don't actually mean it. The kinds of blanket statements you're making, you were given those talking points. You have the position in the teacher's union that you do because you're willing to read from those talking points, but you betray the hollowness of these claims by your own private conduct. We're not saying you should act according to what you've been saying, on my side anyways. I'm not saying that, but it should match. Everybody should agree this should match. I would love to see it match where the kinds of things you're doing privately, you actually advocate for other parents being free to do as well, which is other parents should be free to choose where their child is educated. But this is classic, right? This is classic on the left to change the subject. We're going to talk about private choice, your private choice. No, no, no. Let's not talk about my private choice. Let's make this macro, right? Let's zoom out to where you can't see those details anymore. And hopefully you'll just go with me because this is CNN after all, right? You're another empowered black woman, right? Back to the interview. Thankfully, the interviewer does not let her do that. I myself attended public school my entire life. But I think one of the issues here is actually something that you yourself raised. You wrote a letter to your colleagues and you said that our critics want you to believe that, quote, school choice is a black and white issue that lacks nuance and hard choices for people like us, black families, especially when you are parenting a black boy in America. You wrote that to explain why you chose to take your child out of public school for a, a sports program at a private school. The, the question I think your critics are asking is, why not afford that nuance to the families who might live in the south side of Chicago and in other major cities, and they want the same choice that you were able to afford to give to your child? So a couple of things. Number one, I have three children, and all three children have attended public school, and my youngest two are still public school students. The second thing is that over 90% of my neighbors and my zip code send their children into schools outside of our zip code, outside of our neighborhood. And this is an issue that black Chicagoans, black families in Chicagoans, um, deal with on a very regular basis and, in fact, for generations. This is not an issue of just Stacey Davis Gates and her family. Quite frankly, this is an issue, especially for middle-class black families all across this country, where the public accommodation is obsolete, just like the grocery store in our communities is obsolete, just like the health care provisions in our community are obsolete. What I am saying and what we have said very clearly as a union for a very long time now is that the public accommodation has to be invested and resourced in black communities because we have been defunded and destabilized in those same communities. So when we talk about choice, Abby, what we're talking about is a decision between Frosted Flakes and Cheerios. But in Chicago, and especially in black neighborhoods, it's a decision um, with zero and zero. And that's not a choice. That is, quite frankly, an ultimatum. Okay. So <laughs> let's pause for a moment again. This is really a lot simpler than the spokesperson for the Chicago Teachers Union 
the boss rather for Chicago Teachers Union is trying to make it out to be. This is a lot simpler. When she says our communities, but then in the same breath, she says 90% of her neighbors in her neighborhood send their kids outside of the district to a private school when she says that, but then she switches right back to see our communities, our community, our community. She doesn't live in the same zip code. She doesn't live in the same neighborhood as the people she's representing supposedly or supposedly speaking for. She just happens to have the same skin color as the people who live in predominantly black neighborhoods. And what? She is well-spoken. She's beautiful. She's well-dressed. So they say, ah, let's have her be the spokesperson for the teachers union. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that she lives in an affluent neighborhood where everybody, just about all but 10%, send their kids to private schools. And yet she wants to claim this is our plight. No, it's not our plight. You have a different option and you're exercising your option as it pleases you. And all anybody on the school choice side of the debate is saying is that all parents should be able to exercise that option. And instead, what we have is muddying the waters. Let's muddy the waters. Let's throw some smoke grenades and try and get away from having to answer this very, very simple question of why your private decisions don't match your public rhetoric. It's one thing to talk about our communities, our communities, our communities. You don't have communities except that families live in proximity to one another. You don't have a community except that moms and dads, ideally living together in the same household, married before they have kids, gainfully employed, have a sense of stake. If you take away the ability for those moms and dads to make the choice about what is best for their child, you can't act surprised when some get frustrated, others just completely check out because they say, well, it's not my choice, right? That's the school's job. Left and right, the teachers unions want to say the parents are not competent to make these decisions for the welfare of their children. But all the while, the actual scoreboard The results, irrespective of race, are that when parents do have the option, they do have the choice, and they do make the decision for what is best for their child, it's not sending them to public schools or the public school that's closest to them. It's sending their child to a private school or homeschooling them. That's a fact. And it is not particular to what color your skin is or what part of town you live in. What you would get in the poor neighborhoods, if you gave this choice back to the parents, is you would get less poor, poor people. You would give the keys to ordered liberty back in the hands of parents, and you would get parents being parents. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say the parents are not competent to make this decision, but then at the same time, defend you being competent to make this decision for your son and say this is for the best, right? None of the schools, none of the public schools that I represent the teachers of as part of this union offers sports programs. And my son needs to play sports. He needs that outlet. He needs to be physical and get discipline and training. And he needs to learn how to work with a team and listen to coaches and have competition. 
and have somebody try to stop him from scoring points. He needs to get practice stopping someone else from scoring points. He needs that as part of his educational experience to be well-rounded and to be healthy. And that's not being offered at the local public schools. Well, wait a second. Isn't the school choice crowd saying also that the problem is one of investment? Wealth is extracted from the economy, more specifically the home economies of moms and dads, whether they want their child to attend a public school or not. And then if they want to, if they make the choice to sacrifice and homeschool or send their child to private school, that's all on their dime. All you would have to do to change that is say the money that would typically go to a public school if the child were attending that public school will now follow that child wherever that child gets his or her education. That's all you'd have to do. And then see what parents decide. Empower them and in some sense, let them keep their money. (laughs) You will get better educational results. You'll get happier parents. You'll get healthier communities. You'll get people actually being able to come out of poverty instead of being trapped in a cycle of poverty and fatherlessness and high crime and low opportunity. But back to the interview. One more extended clip here. Um, Black children in the city of Chicago travel outside of their neighborhoods on average two hours more than any other comparative demographic. I, I totally understand the point that you're making, but I do wonder, do you regret your own rhetoric here? Regret rhetoric. What I have said are facts. Again, I'm a well, history I, I think, teacher. I think before, that hold on the rhetoric second, that I Abby, before, let me let me explain before, my let me explain my question. Let me just explain. I, I my understand question. quite clearly what I'm what, what you're I'm saying, asking so, is you, that you're describing a very nuanced issue here. I understand that. I understand the history of you know segregation in the school system, but at the same time, uh, what I'm trying to ask you is. Do you think that your rhetoric at some point went too far when you are making a choice, because perhaps I assume you can afford to do that, that a lot of Chicago parents don't because they can't afford it? And proponents of school choice say the state should have a role in helping those families who can't afford it make the same choice that you did for your family. So a couple of things, Abby. It is nuanced in Chicago. Like I've said, we have been destabilized and defunded in our black communities. When people speak of choice, they are speaking of two different things that are of comparative nature. What we are faced with in Chicago is an absence of a choice, is an absence of resources. And furthermore, school choice in this country has been anchored to a very racist and angry right wing. I can show you a whole host of emails that have come to me and my family detailing that level of violence and racism. So if the choice movement does want to move away from their angry and violent rhetoric, I might add, then they would do themselves a favor and reject the rhetoric of the right that tells us that history is not important. I understand the impact of segregation in Chicago, the impact of destabilization in Chicago, and I face that along with over 90% of my neighbors and that the school that is supposed to be down the street for the cop that lives across the street from me or the retired teacher and her family that lives next door to me 
that's not afforded to us. So when we talk about rhetoric, we also have to talk about the historical record, and the historical record is very clear. The school choice movement was a cudgel for integration in this country. That is a fact. Okay, and we'll just stop right there. There is about a minute and a half left to the embedded video from Corey A. DeAngelis from the CNN interview with Abby D. Phillip. Great work, Abby D. Phillip, interviewing Stacey Davis Gates, not destroying her. She wasn't destroyed, but she was asked tough, pointed questions that we need to know the answers to. We all need to be thinking about why you would say one thing publicly, but then you would do a very different thing privately. And just notice for a moment that Stacey Davis Gates, this president of the Chicago Teachers Union, she says, we don't have choice. Well, wait a second. You say that like it's a problem, that you don't have choice. But then put aside the resentment and claims of some people being ugly racists. Put that aside for a moment. This is very, very simple. Regardless of what some people's motivations are, what kinds of things they say, if they're threatening, if they're ugly, on the basis of you being a beautiful black woman, and she is, by the way. Both of these are beautiful black women. Abby D. Phillip, beautiful. Stacey Davis Gates, beautiful. Both of them very well-spoken. And put aside the people who would say ugly things to them and about them. Those people are ignorant and shame on them. But this is as simple as saying that parents of all skin colors in all neighborhoods have the primary responsibility and are competent to make decisions for how their children are educated. And they're more competent, and the stats bear this out, they're more competent in choosing an educational program that is going to be most beneficial to their child, to their child holistically, intellectually, emotionally, physically, spiritually. It's as simple as that. To make this all about racism and about a grievance against racist people is to totally miss the opportunity that we have right now to do what's best for our children. Why make this into grievance about the prior, the, the prior generation, the previous generation, or four generations ago, or 10 generations ago? Why make this all about resentment and hostility and ugliness? How about let's make this about our children? Think of the children. In this case, I say, think of the children and put them in an environment where they're going to actually learn history and they're going to learn the best lessons from history in a way that's empowering and in a way that's inspiring and inspires virtue and not anger and not resentment and not bitterness and not excuse-making and not hypocrisy. Because you find plenty of hypocrites throughout history. You find plenty of malicious people doing ugly things whenever their standard is doing whatever's right in their own eyes. But when you find people believing that truth is an objective thing and believing that goodness is an objective thing and believing in the inherent goodness of children honoring their father and their mother, obeying their father and their mother, their father and their mother, giving instruction and teaching to their sons and their daughters, and there being honor that comes with children listening to the instruction and teaching of their parents, long lives, length of days, being associated with children listening to the teaching and instruction of their parents. When you look at history and you see what happens to a culture when that's embraced, that there's prosperity, there's peace, there's order, it makes the decision as to what to support here very, very simple. And it needs to be made simple. 
instead of muddying the waters. Saying one thing, doing another, and then muddying the waters when asked about it. For our next clip, though, before we talk about a couple of things that pertain to history and a good reason to study history, I'll play for you a little comedy sketch my wife sent me on Instagram the other day. Thursday uh, would be the other day, which was yesterday, actually, yesterday morning. But this is a little comedy sketch, and it sets up very nicely what I want to talk about in the rest of this episode. Here it is, cut two, if you will, if you'll grant me, considering everything that I just broke up with commentary in the previous segment. I just call that all cut one, because I lost track of how many times I cut it up. Here's cut two. (laughs) Take a listen. I'm a bit of a history buff, which, by the way, that is early onset Republican. That's That's a very serious warning sign. If you're a white dude in your 20s and 30s and you're like, I can't stop reading about World War II, it's coming, bro. You might, you might not be Republican right now. You might be young and cool and liberal. You probably think you're safe, dude. You're not. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes, you think your dad wanted to be Republican? You think, he, you think he got out of high school and he was like, all right, now it's time to be a prick about everything. No, dude, it takes time. And... <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny. That's very funny. That's good stuff. He's right. He's right. Yeah. You know, history, reading history, studying history, enjoying history, being fascinated by history. It's an inherently conservative thing. Now here, I don't have in view the revisionists who lie and they manipulate and they twist history and they selectively edit history to push for their agenda. No, no. When you genuinely love history and you want to know what really, really happened with previous generations, the things they went through, the things they saw, the good things that they did and said, as well as the mistakes that they made and what we can learn from all of the above, when you are that kind of a person and that's your orientation, that's your mindset, and you really enjoy history, you are a conservative. You are. If you put the lessons of history into practice... You go and you get those lessons and then you think about them and then you apply the lessons learned to making better decisions for yourself and for the people around you, giving good input, giving good advice, giving good counsel, you are a conservative. You may just not know it, but that's conservatism. That's the right kind of conservatism. But moving on, let's talk a little bit about speaking of age and speaking of what happens as you get older. Let's talk about the age of majority. Uh, If you've heard of youth, uh, children, teenagers, if you've referred to them or heard them referred to as minors, and you've heard of this euphemism, which is very disturbing, that's being used and it's being substituted, just like we were talking about games being played with language and the definition of words, their usage, changing in very manipulative ways with regards to virtue. We're also seeing that happen with vice and with what is evil and what is sinful and what historically has been uh, stigmatized, rightly so, and criminalized, rightly so. You hear this term, minor attracted person. It's a euphemism for pedophile. We're talking pedophiles. When you hear somebody say minor attracted person or MAP, but the minor part of that, 
is just to say that this is a person who's not reached the age of majority. Now, what is the age of majority? Let's hop on over to Wikipedia and let's take a look at the entry for this topic. The age of majority is the threshold of legal adulthood as recognized or declared in law. It is the moment when a person ceases to be considered a minor and assumes legal control over their person, actions, and decisions, thus terminating the control and legal responsibilities of their parents or guardian over them. Most countries set the age of majority at 18, but some jurisdictions have a higher age and others lower. The word majority here refers to having greater years and being of full age as opposed to minority, the state of being a minor. The law in a given jurisdiction may not actually use the term age of majority. The term typically refers to a collection of laws bestowing the status of adulthood. Those under the age of majority are referred to as minors and may be legally denied certain privileges or rights, for instance, the right to vote, or buy alcohol, marry, sign a binding contract. If a minor attempts to use these privileges, they could be prosecuted as a criminal and sentenced to fines or imprisonment. Age of majority should not be confused with age of maturity, age of sexual consent, marriageable age, school leaving age, drinking age, driving age, voting age, smoking age, gambling age, etc., which may each be independent of and set at a different age from the age of majority. Now, if I skip on down, and I will skip down several uh, paragraphs, there's more that could be said. There's a lot to this article, but let's skip on down to the age of 18. Where does this idea of 18 being adulthood legally come from? I find this at Wikipedia, in the Wikipedia entry here. Quote, the age 18 is identified as the age of adulthood in the Jewish Talmud relative to having sound judgment to make monetary decisions as a judge. Here, the Talmud says that every judgment Josiah, the 16th king of Judah, circa 640 to 609, issued from his coronation until the age of 18 was reversed and he returned the money to the parties whom he judged liable due to concern that in his youth he may not have judged the cases correctly. Other Jewish commentators have discussed whether age 13 or 18 is the age to make decisions in a Jewish court. The highest known age of majority historically was around age 30, during the age of the Roman Empire, where young males were placed under the guardianship of adults known as curatores, whose permission was needed to engage in formal acts and sign contracts until the youth reached the age of 30. This was later lowered to 25 and eventually 21 became the common age of majority. In some places, historically, 23 or 27 could have also been this age. It has also gone down to as low as 14 or 15 years of age. They are somewhat arbitrarily chosen, these ages, but have rarely been designated outside of this approximate age range. It has not always been 18 or 21, but rather a variety of ages. In medieval England, the age of majority was 15, but further increased, later increased to 21. Since 2015, some countries have started to lower the voting age to 16. Some countries like England and Wales are even considering lowering the age of majority to 16, similar to how it already is in Cuba. The main argument for lowering is that on average, young people are much more educated currently, both because of better individual educational outcomes and being raised by more educated parents than in the past. The same argument made in the 1970s when most countries lowered the age of majority from 21 to 18, which is the age still used presently for most countries. In addition, compared to the past, nowadays, information is much more easily accessible as a result of the invention of the internet, 
which can now be accessed through both a computer and also a smartphone. A person reaches the age of majority at midnight at the beginning of the day of that person's rele- uh, relevant rather uh, birthday under English common law. This was not always the case. Now, we'll just stop. This article, by the way, could use some cleanup. It's a little rough in a lot of places. But let's boil it down to the point that there's been a broad range of ages throughout history, over the world, uh, all over the world, there's been a broad range and not exactly a firm set. This is when a boy becomes a man. This is when a girl becomes a woman. And why is that? Right? Why do you think it is, based on what I just read for you, it would seem as though it really has to do with when you have sound judgment. Now think to yourself, what would it be like if instead of, in recent years, Democrats in the US saying, maybe we should lower the voting age to 16, what if instead you had people saying, you know what, maybe we should raise the voting age to 30. Actually, maybe, you know, similar to under the changes to our healthcare system when Obama was president that allowed for young adults to stay on their parents' healthcare plans into their 20s, well into their 20s, kind of like that. Can you imagine what if we said, you know what, because young men, young women are taking so long to grow up, move out, get their own place, buy a car, get married, have kids, because on average, the age at which young people are getting married has increased to 29 or 30, we're going to say you cannot enter into a legally binding contract, you cannot consent to relations, you cannot buy alcohol or tobacco or firearms until the age of 30, you cannot vote until the age of 30. Can you imagine how much upset there would be if that were proposed? And yet this article says that at one point in Roman history, in the Roman Empire, that's kind of what happened, at least with regards to formal acts and signing contracts. A youth could be anybody up to the age of 30 years old, and they had essentially a guardian they had to get permission from before they could make any kind of a a binding agreement. I would imagine that would include marriage. You couldn't just make a decision on your own to get married until you were at least 30 under that legal situation. But the reason I bring this up in part is because we do have something of an ongoing discussion among my circle here in Greeley in relation to youth group. And it's an ongoing discussion and I'm glad for it. I'm very actually encouraged that this is going as well as it is because one, and I've raised the issue, so I anticipate taking the brunt of people's offense and misunderstandings, but we have young men, and it's good for us to think of them as young men, who are youth, who are in high school, in our youth group, who are taking college classes. They're taking classes at our local community college, and then they come to youth group, and we have discussion time, and during the discussion time, they're talking through a passage of the Bible, and it's basically like a little Bible study that's between 15 and 30 minutes long, that's being led by older men, fathers, mothers in the church. And the question was posed to me by my son, speaking of Josiah, my son, Josiah, who is 16, why is it that Paul the apostle writes in the New Testament, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Why do we say that that's a reason to not allow for women to be ordained as pastors? But 
we have mothers, God bless the mothers, we have mothers who are essentially leading these little Bible studies, these little small group discussions during youth group time for the young men. Why is that? And in response to his question, I said, you know, that's a great question. And again, going back to the age of majority, insofar as it's arbitrary, it's not fixed, it's not universally agreed on, but it is always contingent on when youth are regarded as being able to make sound decisions, having sound judgment, having a maturity about them. I think the range may be as young as 16, and it may be as old as 30, depending on when people start reading history and studying history, like in the Instagram clip of the comedy sketch by Shane Gillis, you know, once they start really studying World War II and the Romans, as we'll get into here in just a moment, you know, maybe that's as high as it should be, and maybe it should be as young as 16 if that's when we have young men studying these things and asking these kinds of questions. Maybe about the time you start asking these kinds of questions, that's probably a sign that we should start treating you, regarding you, relating to you as a young man because you're carrying yourself as a young man. If some 28-year-old is still acting like a perpetual adolescent, maybe treat him like he's acting. If he's relating like he's a man-baby, relate to him right back like he's a man-baby. But it's complicated, right? It is complicated, and it's not clear-cut. If the Jewish Talmud, for instance, said 18 is when legal adulthood should be because tradition carries that Josiah's rulings before he reached the age of 18 were all overturned because he didn't have the sound judgment. He had been made king in Israel, but he didn't have the maturity of years and study to be making those decisions and then be good, sound decisions. Okay, well, maybe that's partly our basis for saying 18 is adulthood. But there's no harm done if we have young men who are carrying themselves with sobriety and wisdom and gravitas, if we start relating to them more as young men, don't give them all of the privileges and all of the responsibilities, all of the weight of being men, but start relating to them more as young men so that we don't quench that fire, so that we don't pour cold water on their growing into being young men. That's what I'm arguing for. We'll see where it goes. We'll see who all I can persuade or convince with that line of reasoning. But that's what I believe is much better And you know what? Even when it comes to those who are older and they're well into their 20s, but they keep acting like little boys, when it comes to relating to them as if they're not really actually full-fledged men, the point there too would be to provoke them, not to pour cold water on them, except to wake up one as though they were a drunk and they need to sober up. Relate to them as if they're not really acting like men so that they man up. But if you have younger than that who are already manning up, don't discourage that. Don't quench that. That's all I'm saying. But speaking of history and speaking of men and speaking of the Roman Empire, Joel Abbott, who is my favorite over at Not To Be, Joel Abbott posted just yesterday, watch women shocked to learn how often their men think about the Roman Empire in new TikTok trend. This is very, very funny, and you will be very amused. Rest assured, I do warn you on the front end, there's a little bit of language in a couple of these clips. I'll play for you three clips in this segment, and this will be the last segment for this episode, and then I got to run. But 
These ladies, just to set it up, do not think about the Roman Empire every day. They don't. And let's just say they're surprised. (laughs) They're surprised to find out that most men, maybe all men, think on a regular basis about the Roman Empire. But here it is. I'll play for you cut three of the first of these gals sharing on TikTok that she is very surprised. She's very surprised about this. Here it is in her own words. Cut three. Take a listen. Have you seen the TikTok where the woman says, did you know that most men think of the Roman Empire daily? And she asks her husband and he says, yes, I do. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there is no way that my spouse thinks about the Roman Empire daily. I asked my husband last night in jest, and do you know what this man said? He said, well, in some capacity, probably every day. Why? (laughs) (laughs) And that's where all of the men are like, what, you don't? (laughs) What do you you mean? What kind of a question is that? (laughs) Oh, the look on her face is, it's very funny. It's very, very funny. Uh, But yes, yeah, yes, that's probably accurate that most men think about the Roman Empire on a pretty regular basis. Maybe not every day, but I mean, in some form or fashion, like this gal's husband said, I mean, in some way, I mean, yeah, probably pops into my head most days. Sure. It probably slips into my conversation or a stray thought most days. Yeah. I'll play for you here, cut four of another gal also exploring this, asking her own husband. I do not say that I did not try to warn you. Oh my gosh, take a deep breath if you're going to do this because I am warning you right now, you might not be prepared for what's about to happen. I am on the book of faces, which I never go on unless I want to go support my 83-year-old grandmother's love of sharing memes of Baby Yoda and half-naked cowboys holding puppies. And of course, I have to like them. And I come across this meme. It says, I saw an IG reel that said something along the lines of women have no idea how often the men in their lives think about the Roman Empire. So I asked my husband, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And without missing a beat, he said, every day. I thought to myself, who who are y'all married to? My husband doesn't think about the Roman Empire. We've been married for 16 years and he's never once brought up the Roman Empire to me. And so I needed to know. I needed to debunk this meme that I just saw in the book of faces. And so I walk into the kitchen and I see him in a flow state sitting on the computer working. Normally, I don't interrupt those flow states because we both have ADHD. And I know the moment that you're distracting, you start talking to someone else, especially if it's something that you're interested about, which he's not going to be because he hasn't talked to me about the Roman Empire for 16 years. But I normally don't interrupt those flow states. But then I needed to. I needed to know. And so I said, hey, babe, real quick question. As I slowly sat myself down into the seat, he said, yeah, babe, what's up? I said, just a quick question. Do you ever think about the Roman Empire? And he smirks. And without skipping a beat, he says, I mean, not more than like once a week. Why? And I said, oh, you're playing with me right now, aren't you? You saw the meme, didn't you? He said, what what meme are you talking about? I said, the meme, the Roman Empire meme, the husband meme. Are you playing with me right now? Or do you really think about the Roman Empire more than once a week? He goes, well, not not like that much more, like maybe once or twice, but not more than that. <laughs> what? Who are you? What the, what? He said, what, what is there to think about? He said, what is there not to think about? And then for 20 minutes, this was my second mistake. I said, what do you specifically think about when you're thinking about the Roman empire? I would like, I need to know specifics. Like, is there that much to think about, to think about it at least once a week? And he said, it's, it's everything to think about. It's everywhere you look. I said, no, I've never thought about it in my entire life. So I need to know, like, explain to me specifically what you're thinking about when you think about the Roman empire. And he's laughing at this point because he's like, babe, you're, you're the, you're the confused one. Cause like, 
I'm not. Like every time I'm watching a show, let's say for example we're watching Succession together, I'm thinking about the Roman Empire. Anytime I'm watching one of my pasta shows that I really like, the authentic pasta that they're making, I'm thinking about the Roman Empire. Anytime I see a beautiful building which looks like it has great architect, I'm thinking about the Roman Empire. Whenever I'm thinking about control and men and all these weird things and feeling gratitude that like people just can't march up to our house and behead me and take my wife like i'm thinking about the roman empire and i'm like what <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean that all good points and there's more that could be said but yeah like say for instance when you're driving down the road and you're looking at all the potholes and you're looking at how cracked the roads are and how bumpy they are and how much maintenance they require. And then you think about, man, the Romans were really good at making roads. Why are we not as good at making roads as the Romans were, where their roads and bridges in some places are still what people use in Europe? Why, right? How, how about that, right? I mean, that, I, think, I think that's something we should all think about. Here it is, cut five, we'll play another. <laughs> and then I'll give you some more thoughts and try and tie this all together. Often do you think about the Roman Empire? Um, more often lately than uh, I would say ever before. That's a weird question. Wasn't expecting that one, but oddly enough, I was actually doing some research on the Roman Empire a few months ago, just making sure that Why? you know we weren't. I was just making sure there's a lot of things going on here and around the world. You know, empires only have a certain amount of time that they can stay on top. So, you know, I'm a historian over here. So just doing some research. That's all, okay. That's all. There's, but uh, where, where, where the hell did that question a, come from? <laughs> because empire. there's this TikTok where women are realizing that every man in oh. their life spends time at least once a week thinking about the Roman Empire. And as a woman, wow. it's just like, what are, why, why, when, what? And so every man's like, yeah, I thought about it today. Yeah, I thought about it. And, and it's, the, it's the craziest shit I've ever heard. Well, there you go. I thought about it too. Okay, all right. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. So what's this about? Why do men think about the Roman Empire? I think this is actually pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. And actually that guy... Darius J. Butler, I think is his name. At least he's mentioned in the tweet from Kay Adams. I think he alludes to it where he says, well, you know, listen, I, you know, empires have a shelf life. They don't typically last forever. And so, yeah, I mean, you think about how much of what we just take for granted in the United States, for instance, or in the Western world, which has so much to thank and credit the Romans for. And if you want to maintain it, if you want it to not just collapse and come crashing down and there to be all kinds of, you know, chaos, confusion, upset, death, destruction, yeah, you should probably figure out, okay, you know, what did they do that worked well and what were their mistakes? You know, it, of course, right? I mean, why, why wouldn't you? You know, her question is why? Why, 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 why? Why would you? <laughs> He's like, why wouldn't you? You know? And there's a, a point at the end of this Joel Abbott post at Not The Bee, and there are some more links and more clips and all that. He embeds a tweet from a certain Scott Barber, which says, biblical manhood is just thinking of the Roman Empire less and thinking of the kingdom of God more. But, you know, I I don't know that it's that simple. It It is that, but then there's more that should be said, that it should be unpacked. Rome is in the Bible, right? So Rome 
and figuring out how to relate to Rome, what does it mean to honor the emperor in the context of the New Testament epistles? What does it mean to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? What is Caesar's? And what is God's? Render unto God what is God's? What is God's? What does it mean for Jesus to be taken before Pontius Pilate to be judged? Because it's not lawful for the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death, but they really want to. They really want him dead, and they've wanted him dead for some time now. What does it mean that Paul the Apostle mentions that he's a Roman citizen and is taken off to Rome? What does it mean that one of the most important epistles in the New Testament is the letter to the church at Rome, the letter to the Romans? What does it mean that Paul in that letter explains that we should be subject to the governing authorities? Because no authority— Not one. No authority which actually exists among men exists except having been instituted by God. There's a lot to think about there, particularly if you do also study the Romans. If you read their poets and you read their historians and you read Meditations, for instance, by Marcus Aurelius, or if you read The City of God. Speaking of the kingdom of God, Scott Barber Read The City of God by Augustine, or study the history of Western civilization. Study about the Holy Roman Empire and Charlemagne, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Or consider the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in relationship to the Roman Catholic Church. Or consider the division of the Roman Empire into West and East, and that meaning that the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church in the West is somewhat in contrast to, for quite some time, in stark contrast in some ways, to the Byzantines in the East and the Orthodox Church in the East. And consider that Russia right now and what it is doing in Ukraine is East meets West in something of a continuation of the Western Roman Empire versus the Eastern Roman Empire. Consider that the czars who were overthrown by the Bolshevik Revolution were just taking a Russified name for Caesar. That's all czar means, is Caesar. There is almost no end to how much you could think about the Romans and how we got to now and where we find ourselves. And then, oh, by the way, look at the type of architecture, which most of our most beautiful, most iconic government buildings were built after and built in the tradition of here in the United States, the White House, the U.S. Capitol. These are very Greco-Roman buildings because the founding fathers were thinking a lot about the Romans when they put this country together and they put it into the trajectory that they did with our form of government borrowing so much from the Greeks and the Romans, and yes, the Jews and the Christians. If you only think about where we find ourselves today and what's in the news, you miss so much of where these institutions came from and even the words so often that we use to refer to things, the terms, the ways that we organize, the ways that we define ourselves in relation to one another and our government the way we define our nation 
in relation to other nations. The Pax Romana, for instance, was this Roman peace that came about because of Roman strength of arms and Roman government, Roman trade, Roman order. The corollary in our time is the Pax Americana, which similarly sees itself unraveling and disintegrating as America's governing principles are abandoned and forgotten and our ability to order ourselves is degraded. Of course, you should think about the Roman Empire. Don't stop there, but by all means, read Augustine's City of God, which was an apologetic all about the collapse of the Roman Empire and who should be blamed for it. Should the Christians be blamed for the collapse of the Roman Empire? Just like Nero tried to blame the fire that destroyed so much of the Roman capital on the Christians. He tried to blame the Christians, even though it was probably he himself who set the fire or ordered the fire to be set so that he could rebuild the city according to his own imagination, to flatter himself, to honor himself, to please himself. Nero used the Christians as a scapegoat so that he could persecute the Christians and rebuild Rome with a free hand. And the pagans in Augustine's day were doing the same thing, blaming the Christians for the collapse of the Roman Empire. Augustine says, no, 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 because Augustine thought quite a lot about the Roman Empire as well and knew the history, had read their poets, had read their historians. He said, no, 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 it's not the Christians' fault. Christians are dutiful citizens. They pay their taxes. They fulfill their obligations. They raise strong families. They build strong communities. They do good work and they speak truly. Your forefathers, our ancestors were more virtuous. That's why Rome was great in the first place. And insofar as we gave up on virtue, that's why Rome fell to the barbarians. That's why the barbarians sacked Rome and vandalized it. And that's why the barbarians took over. Because at a certain point, when we become less virtuous than the surrounding peoples, when we become less virtuous than the barbarians, the barbarians take over for the same reasons that we maybe had a great country in the first place. And maybe out of a mercy and as a cautionary tale, they'll enlist some of us to write our own obituary as a nation, as a people, as an empire like Polybius was commissioned by the Romans. And this is interesting. Just like we think so much about the Romans, the Romans thought so much about the Greeks. And actually, according to their own founding myths, Rome was founded in the first place because of refugees fleeing the sack of Troy by the Achaeans, which is to say the Greeks. Troy was initially a fight over a woman, much like the fight between the Israelites and the Benjaminites had its root in a dispute over a woman. But really, it wasn't a dispute about the woman. It was a dispute about the nature of what is right and what is wrong. And will we permit this disorder to become normative? Will we normalize it? Will we rationalize it? Will we excuse it? No, we must deal with it. We must fight it. We must deal justice. And Troy rallied behind Paris and they suffered for it. And according to legend, it was refugees from Troy who founded Rome. And then ironically, in due time, it was the Greeks who became effeminate, self-absorbed, and they gave up on virtue, and they gave up on having children and getting married and raising up future generations in virtue and in wisdom. It was the Greeks who fell to the Romans. And then the Romans thought a lot about the Greeks and where the Greeks went wrong. And how do we take the best of what the Greeks produced while also not suffering the same fate as the Greeks. In due time, 
they did suffer the same fate as the Greeks. And the barbarians, those who were considered by the Romans barbarians, had emulated the best qualities of the Romans and now were better Romans than the Romans. And so they took over Rome. And now we have the United States trying to take the best of Christian Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire, trying to take the best lessons of the Romans and the best lessons of the Greeks. And so also, if we refuse to learn from their mistakes, if we refuse to get married and have children and train up future generations in virtue and in wisdom and in honor in an orderly way, we too will go the way of the Romans and the Greeks before us. And actually, interestingly enough, the way of the Israelites, because these themes, they come together with Christianity. And this is part of how Christianity allows Western civilization to be so dominant. These lessons learned from history allow us to make better decisions together than all non-Western civilizations are able to. If we forget that, if we allow other people to badger us into forgetting it, then our fate will be the same as those previous generations who have willfully forgotten and neglected these things. Going back to the end of the book of Judges, the very last chapter, we see a priority placed on getting wives for Benjamin, for the tribe of Benjamin. What's left, if it will endure, must reproduce. These men need wives, and the children who will be gotten from those unions will be Benjaminites because their fathers are Benjaminites. And the tribe will endure almost irrespective of who the mothers are because the fathers were Benjaminites. But this is recognized as the only way that Benjamin will be preserved if these men have wives and get children. But then it says at the last, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is to say it was chaos and confusion and not peace. You have to have order. You have to instill order and put things in order if you want there to be peace, if you want there to be freedom and liberty. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.